You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max, and before we get started, I just want to say thanks to Squarespace. Squarespace, as you may know, is the best way to build a website. Whether it's a uh, portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell whatever it is you sell, uh, maybe it's a website for your new podcast, Squarespace gives you everything you need to make that next move to turn it into a reality, including a free domain. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the code LONGFORM at checkout. You'll get 10% off your first purchase. Thank you, Squarespace. Here's the show. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. It's an exciting one we got this week. That's a fact. Max, who is it? It's, it's full circle. It is full circle. David Gran, uh, back on the show. He was first on the show, episode three. Yeah. Almost five years ago. An insane fact. You almost peed your pants <laughs> in that episode. <laughs> uh, good backstory of the uh, original David Grant episode is that uh, it was the first interview that I'd ever done for this, and I was nervous as hell, and Aaron had to give me like a whole pep talk outside the New, York, New Yorker office. At one point, like a little kid, I was like, dude, you could, uh, you could just come up with me. We yeah. could do it together. And you were like- be an adult. Be be a person in the world. <laughs> you are not a small child. I think I was like, well, I'll go do it, but you can't come if we do that. <laughs> I'm not holding your hand all the way to sleepaway camp. We've been we've been waiting for this episode for many years. You did not intentionally wait from episode three to episode two hundred and whatever this is for that. No, I very shortly after that interview said you need to come back on the show, and he said I will come back when my book is out. I've just started working on this book. I'm quite excited about it. I will come back when it is out, and that book is out. It came out yesterday. Wow, what's the name of that book? It's called Killers of the Flower Moon, and. Uh, it's a, it's really good. I, I could my memory could be uh, flawed, but I believe this is the first time a galley has come into this office and there's been uh, a standoff about who is going to be the first person to take it home with them. I didn't see it, or I would have. It would have been mine. Except that we kept Evan completely outside of that <laughs> by never allowing him to know that it was here. There have been multiple people in this office who were asking for the book. Aaron, I uh, took it second yeah. after Max, and uh, my understanding is you ruined it. I uh I I got a lot of I got a lot of like uh, sheetrock dust <laughs> inside it. But was it good? At it least was, I mean it was it was incredible enough that I was sitting in a pile of dirt and dust reading it. Uh it is vintage David Grant. It is everything uh that I like about his writing kind of 
on historical steroids. Uh, it's a really incredible book. I highly, highly recommend uh, reading it. Max, is this a so? There's some twists in here. We is this uh, is this episode on spoiler alert or not on spoiler alert? No, it turns out you guys might be surprised. Is uh, David Grant very good about talking about stories without revealing the twist? Okay, excellent. Okay, so, <laughs> so it's like someone can listen to this and then immediately go buy the book. Absolutely, and, read it. Okay. and you, I, f- I feel like you'll have uh, fantastic context for the book. Like he talks about it in great depth, and you don't know the surprise he's a master even of that (laughs) he really is man he really is i myself am not a master at emailing or keeping email lists that's why i let mailchimp perform that service for me they make it simple and easy to stay in touch with the people who have touched your project business endeavor etc thank you mailchimp for your ongoing support of the show and now here's max with david grant David Grand, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Max. It's been a long time, and we're in a fancy studio now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have come a long way from me showing up at the New Yorker's old office. That is correct. Yeah. With, like, one shitty microphone and putting it in the middle of a conference room table. I still remember. Doing my Chris Farley impression. <laughs> it is really, really nice to have you back. I've been looking forward to this for a while. And you are back because you have a book, and it is called Killers of the Flower Moon. And in true David Grand form, there are some twists in the story. Can I say that? Yes, certainly. Okay. So, like, how do you want to handle spoilers in this conversation right now? Yeah, it's a a good question. I haven't really thought about it. Um, Obviously, uh, the story is a mystery with lots of intrigue and lots of uh, twists and turns. And there are probably ways to talk about it with maybe not just revealing the name of at least one of the primary conspirators. Maybe you can start by just giving us the, like brief uh, synopsis of the book. I'm actually interested in how you would describe it. Yeah. So the book is about the Osage Indians of Oklahoma, who in the 1920s became the wealthiest people per capita in the world. Uh, Like so many Native Americans, they were driven off their land. They once controlled much of the Midwest. They ended up in this rocky kind of infertile soil in northeast Oklahoma. And then lo and behold, oil was discovered under their land. And by the 1920s, there were only about 2,000 Osage that became millionaires, um, which belied many stereotypes because they had even white servants, they had white chauffeurs, they lived in mansions, and then they began to be serially murdered um, in one of the most sinister crimes I came to believe researching it in American history. So the book kind of has three parts. Uh, the first part is the perspective of one Osage woman. The second part is sort of from the perspective of the FBI leader on the ground. That's correct. Who's basically tr- like trying to figure out what modern law enforcement looks like. Yes. Yes. Uh, while investigating this incredible layered conspiracy crime, and then the third part is kind of about you, which seemed new for you a little bit. Yes. Until I came up with a structure. I didn't really know how to tell the the story. I really was bewildered because it spans many years. It involves many, many homicides, many, many investigators. And so there was kind of almost no organizing principle. And the one thing I really did not want the book to be was just the cataloging of the dead. The things I had read about the case often just kind of listed the names 
you didn't know what they went through, what they experienced, who they were, what their life was like. And so I did the first chronicle. It's told in three chronicles, as you said. And the first chronicle is told from the point of view of Molly Burkhart, who becomes a prime target of the conspiracy. And you get to kind of experience, this is an Osage story. I thought it was very important to start with the Osage and how they kind of were experiencing what was happening. Um, and then the second chronicle uh, is told from the point of view of Tom White, this lawman. And both Tom White and Molly Burkhart are in many ways these transitional figures. In many ways, the book is about the birth of a modern country or mm-hmm. the formation of a modern country. Molly grew up in a lodge in the 1880s, uh, speaking Osage and practicing Osage ceremonies. And within a short span of a few decades, she's living in a mansion. She's speaking English. She's married to a white man. Tom White grew up in a log cabin uh, on the frontier of Texas at a time when justice was pretty much meted out by you know, a smoking barrel of a gun. And by the time he's working on the case in the 1920s, he's trying to figure out fingerprinting and ballistics and handwriting analysis became a big part of the case. He has to wear a suit, which um, um, the photos of him are just amazing, the changes. And then, and so both of these are kind of these people who, in case of Molly, she straddles not only two centuries, she straddles almost two civilizations. And in the case of Tom White, he certainly straddles two centuries. The third chronicle is where I come in in, um, in the present, and that was so I could fill in the gaps in the history. Mm-hmm. So often when history is told, we use the power of hindsight, and therefore we write about it not the way people experienced it. And I think it's really important in telling history that you write it so that you understand what people were experiencing when they did not have that power of hindsight, when you're living in the midst of a conspiracy. And so by coming back to the present, it was a way for me then to help fill in the gaps, although there were parts that I couldn't find or see either. We're all a little bit bewildered, and I wanted that to come through, hopefully, in the structure as well. When do those larger themes that you're talking about, sort of like you want the book to represent the bewilderment <laughs> of life, like when, <laughs> when, when does that enter into the way you're thinking about Probably it? Probably when I'm so bewildered. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a really interesting thing. So um, I never know, especially the deeper dimensions of a story, until I'm deep in it. So early on, you know, you get some sense of the parameters and you start to decide, okay, there are enough trails of evidence to pursue. I think ultimately a story has to be about more than its particulars. Mm -hmm. You know, there are crimes, there are dates, there are facts, but ultimately this becomes about something. But if, Uh, if those things that it becomes about are not apparent to you at the beginning, like how do you, David Grant, at this point know, like... <laughs> you don't. I'm just, don't. I'm going for it. You like, don't. This is I mean, pursue. you know that the... Uh, this was one where, from the very beginning, I knew if I could tell the story, I need to tell it. This is a grave racial injustice that, while deeply remembered by the Osage, has been largely lost to so many Americans. And so you feel that immoral import. Then you go through a part of it, well, how can I even tell the story? Partly figuring out a book is figuring out sometimes the things that seem like the biggest obstacles. So when I started to do the book, at when, a certain... When was this, just so we know? Back in, I guess, 2011 is when I first had the idea. And, you know, I thought of it as a kind of contained story of the Bureau's investigation focused on one conspiracy. As I got deeper into the story, I started to realize that this was a story where there were kind of plots within plots. There was a much larger, deeper conspiracy, which the Bureau never exposed. So I need to kind of go there. As I went there, I started to realize there are parts of the story I 
don't know. And I don't, I'm, I felt sometimes like I was chasing ghosts. And just so for listeners, because it's a little bit confusing not to be so distracted. So what happens is part of this case is solved through the Bureau. But as I discovered, and, and as the Osage know, there are these other unsolved crimes that, that there were many more perpetrators. And many Osage have lived with these kind of mysterious deaths in their families and carried out their own investigations into them. And when I met with them, many of them would give me little bits of evidence, suspects, and I would do my best to try to investigate them. But so often was the case that there weren't enough trails of evidence after so many years. And so you start to think, oh my goodness, how how can I tell the story when there's so much unknown? And then you realize, but that unknowability is actually part of the essential theme of the story. And so part of what understanding a story or what a book is about is actually reckoning with what actually at first seems like a problem. And then in a way, that problem for you with very different stakes is at least related to the problem that these surviving Osage have. It, with 100%. So what you realize is that until this project, I kind of always thought of history as part of it being the horror of what you know. And as I began to pursue all these other threads and look into these other cases of unsolved crimes that probably are never going to be solved, you start to realize that the deeper horror is often what you don't know. And of course, as you say, this is what the Osage have lived with in so many cases. And just to give a specific example, um, there was a lawman, uh, he was a, an attorney. Um, he was white, who was one of the few people who tried to stop the killings during the 20s and began to investigate them and gather evidence. And he was thrown off a speeding train. Uh, he was murdered. And that crime was never solved. And I tracked down the descendants his descendants. And when I spoke to them, I asked them, you know, did the family ever have any suspects? Did they, who did they think might have done it? And they really didn't know, but they mentioned that their grandmother, his, uh, the, the victim's uh, widow, had some tension with one individual. So I began to investigate that individual. And I, over time, I began to gather real circumstantial evidence that I thought was pretty convincing that I had figured out who had killed Vaughn, who had thrown him off the train. And I called the granddaughter to tell her what I had found. And she began to cry. And I suddenly felt terrible. I just said, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry. And I, I almost wondered, like, should I not have even been sharing this? And then she said, no, no, no. We've been living with this for so long, not knowing. And I, it really drove home to me just it's like an MIA. It's like when you don't have at least um, some sense of what happened, um, that haunts people. And in this case, it had haunted someone. We were already, you know, a third generation. This was a granddaughter. A granddaughter who obviously had never met him. Yes. No, um, I, there were only a few people who sadly have since passed who I spoke with who knew some of the people, even somebody who knew Molly. Um, but that was um, very few. In most cases, you were dealing with third generation. Hey, Aaron. Hey. We're going to take a little break here. and uh, I'm enjoying w- your conversation. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I have a question for you. You recently uh, built a website. That's right. I have a new podcast called Stoner. It features 
conversations with interesting people who enjoy marijuana, and I needed a very minimalist website for it. I almost didn't need a website at all, but you kind of need a website for everything. You sort of do, but you don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Well, that I, as you know, because you've worked with me, uh, spending a really long time on something that is not the most important thing is one of my <laughs> specialties. And I actually, I know how to make a website. I made the very first version of Longform. I know how to make a WordPress site, but I don't have the time to be doing that, and I know that it's destructive to my life if I embrace that. So I went with Squarespace because they made it so easy to do something that is as slick as custom, as perfect as anything I could have come up with. On did you get own. a free domain there through I did, Squarespace? Uh, I didn't for the, actually what I did is I used, I already had that domain, so I used that to pay it forward and get another free domain. That's what you can do at Squarespace. It's uh, it's uh, the best way to build a website. If you got to do something quick and easy, but have it look pro and beautiful, go to Squarespace. Aaron's show is at stoner.co. Squarespace is at squarespace.com. And if you go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LONGFORM for your first purchase, you're going to get 10% off. Again, that's LONGFORM for 10% off and a free domain. Recommend it to a friend. It's the nicest thing you could do to them. You know what's uh, not nice, Aaron? Going to the post office? That's correct. I, uh, I'll do anything to avoid the post office. I just finished, uh, I just finished doing some uh, renovation on my apartment, and now I have to return all of the stuff. So as you can see, every time I show up, my uh, backpack is full of stuff because like, we got this off of stamps.com scale. It's amazing. Stamps.com means you never have to go to the post office again. Anything you can do at the post office, you can do uh, right there on stamps.com from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage, uh, really anything. Anything I mean, if I had do. it at home, I wouldn't have to lug it in a backpack. But even this, it's a, it's a miracle and a blessing. So thank you to Stamps.com. Uh, how, how can people find them? Well, here's what you should do. I think you should get Stamps.com at home. I, can you hook it up? Yes, I believe I can. I have an offer for you. Go to Stamps.com and use the code LONGFORM. You'll get a four-week trial. You'll get free postage and a digital scale. Again, that's Stamps.com. they got a little uh, radio microphone in the top right corner of the homepage. Go click on that. Type in LONGFORM. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again, Aaron. Here is Max with David Grant. All right. I promised myself that I was not going to let you leave another episode of the Longform Podcast without doing a little bit of like nuts and bolts, <laughs> storytelling, <laughs> practical advice. Yes. How do you outline, organize a book like this? What is, what is your system? So initially, um, actually, I had a board in my office. Of my, I didn't have a whiteboard at the New Yorker, and so I asked for a uh, piece of cardboard. I, got, I was given a piece of cardboard, <laughs> um, and this was very early on, and I scrawled a bunch of names, the characters. I was trying to find the connections and trying to kind of organize it. Like you had like a beautiful yeah. mind thing going on? I think I feel like we all have, like in every crime show, there's, you have to have that, that, <laughs> that, uh, what's the show? Uh, home. Uh, Homeland? Homeland. Yeah, yes. Yeah, you need yeah. your, you need your mad board. It's right. like every show now has a, so I had my mad board and um, I would say at that point I was just trying to figure it out. I would say, all right, let me step back. I think the first process is you don't have a system. I begin a story like this. I have no system. I just basically want to write down every name, every institution connected to the story, and then start to try to drill down 
where are the source materials that could possibly come from those? Where literally, where are you writing that down? So I'll write that down into a computer, like in so a I'll, Word doc. Yeah, I would literally just create an outline, which just basically, like, uh, maybe I'll even title it like sources individuals to follow. Maybe I'll break it down like these are the lawmen, these are the Osage. Maybe I'll organize it by murderers, alleged murderers, murder victims, historical figures, and just create like a database of weird things. So part of it will be, okay, now I need to start doing family trees if I'm looking for descendants. So how do I do family trees? Um, go through that process, try to track people down, get phone numbers. So it's a general process. Where's and If it's a contemporaneous story, I do the exact same thing. I'll read it, all the newspaper stories that are out there, highlight every single name, every institution who I might want to call or reach out to. Um, so in this case, I send FOIAs out to everybody, letters. I spent a year just waiting, waiting for information to creep in begin the process of looking for descendants. At that point, your mind and your eyes are wide open. I don't have any barriers to what I'm looking for because I don't know what I'm looking for yet. I have general outlines of the story. I have individuals involved. I've read some things, but you need to be completely open-minded to what you are getting. And then you start to get that information, and then you start to read through it. And then at that point, as you get a better sense of the story, you then start to think of, okay, what is relevant? What becomes not relevant? Oh, you know what? This person really only had a very small tangential part. You thought they had a big part. Oh, you really want to tell this person's story? There's no material about this person. How could you make that person a central? So the practical limitation. So you go through that process and you then start to impose some kind of structure. For me, coming up for the structure in this book was really important. It's not always as important in a magazine piece, but knowing that so having a way that each person could carry me through a different part of the story. That was the other thing for this structure is you have to reckon with your material before you can organize it. Because until you know what you have, you don't know how to organize. So when I got the first layers of information, I started to realize, wait, there's so many characters. And actually, nobody could actually lead me through the whole story. Right. There wasn't one person who was actually here for the beginning and here for the end. That would be the natural way you would think to organize a story. There may be, but there wasn't that. Was it a difficult choice to use yourself? You know, initially I didn't want to, but then I was essential. I didn't see any way around it. So that's part of it, too. The structure has to be organic to what you find. You don't come up with a structure before you know what you have because that's backwards. And then you're, then you're, you know what, I, I, I've always believed this, that there is not a million ways to tell a story. I actually generally believe there's one way to tell a story there's some ideal and your goal is to see if you could find it. <laughs> um, but you have to reckon the structure has to be an outgrowth of the material, what it is, who's involved. And so that becomes that next layer. Then once you come up with that structure, then you begin to break it down because then you start to figuring out, okay, I tend to tell stories pretty chronologically, but you start to figuring out, okay, where would be a beginning point? And then what's the information I need for that? So let me just take you back one more step. So what I'll do with documents, so I'm getting tens of thousands of documents. That was a real pain because there's no way to manipulate the information on your computer. So one of the things that took me forever for this book was just taking the information from the documents, typing them into a database. I created a central repository of information that basically kept crashing my computer. I had to eventually break it down into smaller repositories of information. But that was a way for me then to just have the information so I could search it. And I do the same thing with any story, whether it's 
contemporaneous magazine. I create a repository. What is like the actual software you're using when you say the I, machine? Well, everyone tells me I need to use Scribner, which is I'm going to use for the next book. <laughs> um, I tried to learn it on my own and I couldn't figure it out. So I stuck with Word, which was is really frustrating and annoying. And and you could so hard to have two files. I saw someone had two computers up in their office. I was like, I, I was thinking maybe that would work. But in any case, then you, <laughs> then you can, then you break down the material into more discrete workable outlines uh-huh. and therefore you know okay I'm telling Molly's story here's everything I know about her character everything I know about her family these are going to be some of the scenes and then you can take the information all the repository from your interviews and documents and you start to just build an outline based on that mm-hmm. and that's what I write off of and by doing that discrete outline and this is so boring to most people but in any case this is the long form <laughs> podcast this is, this is a place where this is not boring <laughs> so um, I'll take that discrete outline and that teaches you what you still are missing you don't right. really know what you're missing until you get down into the weeds but you begin very broad then I impose a general parameter structure, and then I start to do more discrete structures. Does that make any? That, that be, makes perfect sense. Yeah. How much of your time is reporting and outlining, and how much of your time is writing? Mm. Sub question: yeah. Which is harder? The majority, I would say, is the reporting, researching, and outlining is the most time-consuming. If it's a story that is contemporaneous, in which I visually witness something. I can write it very quickly if I'm a participant or a witness. It's the only time I can write quickly. The researching and the writing, the writing of reconstructive scenes, I find very slow, though, and I'm very slow at it. And partly that is because, you know, you start to write a sentence, and, you, and you're looking at a document, and you say, the document says, oh, we came to the house to witness them. And so I'll start to write, oh, they showed up on her stoop. And then I'll start to look at the sentences. Wait a second, did she have a stoop? And then I'll be like, wait, do I have a photograph? <laughs> and then you have to either say, if you either find out they did have a stoop or you find out, well, we don't know if they have a stoop, so I'll just say, showed up at the door. But you know, you you instinctually, where if it's contemporaneous or where you could just pick up the phone and you could just call somebody up and be like, okay, I'm writing this scene. You said to me you were here, but like, what were you eating? And like, what was the food? And who said, so when you can't do that, that slows the writing process down. So the writing for this was, was a slower process because it was reconstructive and sometimes there were limits to information. And so they sent me to try to find out the information or I would have to change what I wrote or could circumscribe what I wrote to be precise. When you sit down to actually do the writing, how much of the tone and motifs that are going to come in like how much of that is sitting there for you and how much are you kind of like making it up as you go along yeah for a lot of my magazine writing I'm pretty almost voiceless I mean I'm I'm very cipher like at least in the case of this book I tried to find a voice that was similar to a lot of the oral histories I read about the case or about Osage oral histories of people at the time. It was actually because part of then during the Depression, there was a period where people were giving these oral histories and they would record them. It's like a kind of hero. And I just wanted it to have a certain simplicity. Um, I'm not sure why. I just felt like this was not an ornate story. Um, you you didn't want a lot of adverbs in this story. I think you, maybe I'm a little more conscious of this now than I'd always been, but try to find a style and a voice that fits the story the same way the structure is a natural outgrowth of the story. I feel like this story needed a certain kind of simplistic voice, a, West, a more Western, unadorned. I tried to even use 
some of the language or phraseology that I picked up from transcripts that they would use just to give you a sense of the period and the place. Whenever I would read documents, I kept a vocabulary list of diction. And a lot of it I ended up cutting out because sometimes it didn't quite work. Um, but it, it was partly me just trying to understand how people spoke and understanding how they spoke helped me understand them. It didn't work because it seemed kind of like hokey? It, yeah, just sometimes it didn't work. But I did it in some places. It was just a weird balance. Um, like, for example, and I think I kept this in, but like moon liquor instead of moonshine. And I thought moon liquor just had a certain – I saw someone refer to as moon liquor. You're just trying to access – the language that people were using. And in fact, I tried to use some of the diction that was very distinct from in the part that was more Molly Burkhart, the Osage, and then Tom White, who has a little bit more bureaucratic, some of the language syntax at the Bureau that was creeping into his own vocabulary when he wrote and talked. So I was conscious of kind of even when I quoted him using some of that language because how people speak and their vernacular is a way to understand them and to understand the period. It brings you closer to them, I think, and reveals them in their own way. Once you've found the story, from outlining to reporting to writing, what is the part of that that's the hardest for you and why? The most challenging part in some ways is finding the archival material in a story like this. That took a lot of time. It could be frustratingly slow and involved many hours in archives. And so in some ways that was the hardest, but it's not really psychically hard. It's mechanical. Right. <laughs> it could be hours. Elbow and t- grease hard. It's a, yeah, yeah, it's arduous. It's time consuming. For me, writing is always the part that is psychically difficult because there you're suddenly forced to give words to all this material to express it. You want to get it right factually. You also want to hopefully write something that has a certain, that's written well enough that it conjures the images and does justice to the story. And that, that's always the hardest part because that's the part where you have to overcome your doubts and you just got to kind of keep going. <laughs> Is that getting any easier? No. Those doubts stick around? No, it doesn't get, I, well, no, I hope it does. I'm, I just turned 50, so I'm hoping for the next one it will be easier. But if you have me back when I'm 60, um, I will tell a story, but I will the person will name nameless because I, I don't have the permission to tell the story. But when I first got to The New Yorker, there was a writer there who I worshipped over my uh, career as a writer when I first got there. And they were walking me by uh, his, so I guess I'm revealing gender now, his office. And there was a mattress on the floor. And I said, why is there a mattress on the floor? He said, well, you know, when, when he's filing, he can't sleep, he's up all night the day before, and he writes. And he was, you know, he's a person who's a generation older than me. And I just thought to myself, oh, my God, this is never going to get easier. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if you've got the same doubts now, it's not going to get any easier. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> How much, as you went deeper and deeper in the stories, you got to know these descendants of the characters in your book and reading through the acknowledgments at the end of the book it's clear that you became close with a lot of these folks yeah. like the the thank you is not for um just giving you some photos it's for opening their homes yeah uh, there was one 
house that you use to like do all your interviews. Yes, yes, yes. The project took a long time, longer than anything I'd ever worked on. I knew I wanted to tell the story pretty early on, but I thought there was a certain kind of threshold that was essential for this kind of story, which is that the voices of the victims were recorded and because I felt like that's what was missing. I mean, Molly Burkhart, her story, she's just always just a, a sentence, if you know. <laughs> and so I wanted to make sure that that was central. And so getting that kind of archival records, getting the descendants who could pass on letters, documents, whatever might exist, tell me uh, oral histories, et cetera, became essential. So it took a long time. And so because of that, you know, I worked on it for probably nearly five years. And so during that time, I got to know a lot of the Osage, a lot of the descendants who were very helpful. They were incredibly generous, pointing me in directions, giving me leads, being patient with me. I think, you know, I, I never want to speak for other people. I never ask people, why do you talk to me? I, um, but, you know, I did get a sense that um, this is such a part of their history, but it is a part of, that it's kind of a secondary crime that the broader country doesn't know this history. Right. Well, and, th- and that's what I was going to ask is how much of your pursuing those answers was about your book and how much of it was for these people that you had grown connected to? That's a good question. I mean, you feel with a story like this that I don't always feel. I do a lot of stories that are larks, um, hunt for the giant squid. or um, This is one of those cases where you do feel a moral impetus in a way that kind of compels you. Um, part of the book is a work of documentation, and I did something which I had never done in my works before, which is I really integrated photographs because I wanted the words and the images to almost complement each other. In this case, it makes these people real. Yeah. It, re- it really did in a powerful way for me. And and it's because it's not like um, just a series of photos in the middle of the book. No, I wanted it to be that you see the photos as things are happening. I mean, I have pictures of the house before it blew up and then after it blew up. Um, I have pictures. Spoiler, a house blows up. <laughs> yeah. I have pictures where they're literally look describing a picture they're looking at. And then I could show you the picture. Because I wanted this to be a, a work of um, documentation, but as part of that, I gathered a lot of photographs of the victims, and over time, that those images numbers grew, and it, it was a way just to kind of remind myself as the years went on why I was doing this. I'm not sure you totally answered my question. Like what I hear you saying is it the the sort of moral aspect of it was present for you the whole time. You feel the burden. You feel a certain responsibility. And you feel you let people down. There were times towards the end when people would give me documents and I would take them and kind of nod. And deep down I knew, I'm not going to find the answers on this one. Or I'll try, but there's just so many and there's so many trails gone. And you, it's funny, when I was very young uh, reporter, I was much more... Um, arrogant (laughs) about one's powers of observation. And I've gotten older, I've become much more humble about the limits of what we can do and what we can see. So my hope is that what I did find did the story justice. But there were cases where I knew, you know, there was one person I became very close to, Catherine Redcorn, who's a museum director. Um, she, In fact, she was one of my first people I met when I went out to Osage uh, territory. 
And I described this scene in the book, but when I, this before I met her, I went to the Osage Nation Museum, and she was then the director. And on that wall, there was this big photograph. And it, it was a, and a photograph is in the book. <laughs> it's a photograph, panoramic photograph taken in 1924. And it shows members of the Osage Nation with white settlers. Looks like this completely innocuous pageant. But there was a piece missing in the photograph. And I asked the museum director, who I came to know as Catherine, why was one of the panels missing? And she pointed it to the missing panel. And she said, because the devil was standing right there. And then she went downstairs, and they had an image of the missing panel, and it showed one of the lead conspirators who was responsible for the killings. For me, that was both a real turning point in me and wanting to tell the story. Um, I wanted to know who the devil was. I wanted to know why the Osage had removed the picture because they couldn't forget, and yet all of us have forgotten. And then she went and she showed me the picture, and less than what she told me than was the photo she showed me, which is so chilling because you see this long pageant and then you see the face of this killer who you know looks like Norman Rockwell or something and he's just peering creepily over the edge that was truly chilling um and then Catherine mentioned a murder in her family a suspicious death and it was one that I really because we became close I just tried to go through archives and I told her at a certain point I just said I only could get I really couldn't get very far how do you let that go? Like, how do you stop? Well, you never want to stop. Um, and, you know, there's probably a reason why one year went to the other year and to another year and, um, and why five years basically went by because you're trying. And at a certain point, if you're going to get this story done, it needs to be told. You've got to have to just accept the parts that you're not going to get. Can we go back to what you're saying about humility? Mm-hmm. Why do you think you have become humble about the powers of observation? I think when you're young, you you think you're going to figure it all out. You know, there's a certain arrogance to your sense. And the more stories I reported over time, the more I just realized there are parts of the story I can't always get to. You know, unless, you know, this is a reality show and there's 18 cameras in every room and people before they sleep and maybe you have some mind bug in their brain with their unconscious, they're just parts that you're just not going to know. And you get as close as you can. And so the struggle to me is to get as close as I can, to peel it back as close as I can. But understanding that... There will be elements, there will be pieces that will remain, you know, niggling doubts. Is that part of why you've gravitated more towards history stuff? Like the last big New Yorker piece was the Yankee Commandante. It's like uh, also filled with unknowns. Yeah. You know, I don't know if that was so conscious. I think there was a certain point in my career where I, early on, I always thought of relevancy so that it has to be news, you know, it has to be happening. And so somehow if it happened two years ago, it was no longer a story. Was that like somebody else's stakes or were those your stakes? Well, I guess it was just being in the profession. And, you know, I start out in a newspaper and you just feel like, you know, what's the day's news? And, and if you go to an editor and you tell them, well, I'm interested in this, they're like, well, that's old. Um, and then I also started to realize that's another artificial constraint that's really not relevant to why we tell stories, that if the story is important or has resonance, drama. Um, and so I became much more detached from temporal 
constraints. And it doesn't mean, so I don't think I necessarily, uh, that I was like, oh, I want to do history or, oh, I want to do the present. I'm happy, but I no longer have any sense when I look for stories now that they need to be contained in some temporal space the way I once did. I feel like I have to do my due diligence and stand in for people who are listening <laughs> who are like grinding on news all the time <laughs> and who would love to get away from <laughs> uh, temporal needs. <laughs> yes. Um, and it, so it's not just that you arrived at a place. You also got to a place in your career more where free. like. Yes, I got more free. Yes. You, you can go question. spend five years doing this much, and, and no, no one's like, uh, no, uh, David, we need some No, news. no, I, I spent most of my, you know, the funniest thing with me is I started out as a political uh, writer. I became a political writer only because that was the only job I got. So I got a job at the Hill newspaper as a copy editor. The funniest thing is I'm, half blind is anyone who knows me and when I say half blind like I'm literally half blind like I have an eye degenerative disorder and so the idea of me being a copy editor is like something out (laughs) of like the Simpsons or something so and so of course I field colossally so they promoted me which was good but for for so long in my career I would go to editors and I'd say you know I want to tell this story about the mafia and they're like you know can you go cover Hillary Clinton's campaign Um, now I don't think most people even think of me as a political that I ever (laughs) even covered politics but forever my mission in life was just please don't make me cover another campaign (laughs) Um, uh, the humility thing though yes I got some more questions about that has that change has that shift made you better at your job it's made me um, in some ways I think it's always very important to understand other people and um, it makes me also go over things many times. I also think it's made me slower, not faster, mm-hmm. because I want to make sure, especially with a story like this where it's a crime story. I always feel with crime stories, there's a kind of almost higher moral bar. It's almost the opposite because it's funny. I read so many tabloid crime stories that are very sensationalized, and I like reading them. Um, David Remnick always refers to some of my stories as like the gothic tales because he's like, keep that one for your gothic <laughs> too because they're just really, there's no larger reason to tell the story other than that it's gothic. But when you're telling certain crime stories, I do feel like it's almost the inverse because it's sensational, because it has those elements, you almost need to be even more responsible and judicious in the way you tell the story. Are you attracted to those stories because they're sensational and then you feel that um, extra calling or is the work of finding the extra calling what attracts you to the stories? For some reason, crime has always drawn my interest ever since from the books I read to the novels I read. So I think whatever, there is something in me about human transgression and then how that reverberates in society. But I'm a believer that you can use storytelling to do important things. In other words, this is a mystery. This is a story that has twists and turns. Some of these, One of the villains in this character is like, somebody I've never encountered in fiction or nonfiction. I mean, he's like something out of Cormac McCarthy would be, I guess, the closest thing. Can you talk a little bit more that, about that without... Uh, yeah, well, I mean, bo- he's just a person who, who shows up in a town with no past and transforms himself into this power broker. Um, and, of course, the past that is concealed is the blood that got him to where he was or, or stood. And there's almost such a duality this is a badness that is cloaked in goodness and benevolence and justice. So it has a villainy. It's also the criminal plots are extremely calculating. 
these are not impetuous crimes. Right. These are not um, somebody who's high on drugs, who goes and sticks up a bank and does something awful. Right. They required day after day, night after night, looking people in the eye yes. who you were trying to kill. It's who you were trying to kill and cultivating the plot over years. And it involved hiding your face, which I guess is true of any conspiracy, but the hidden face in this case, it's the devil. The devil was standing right there, as Catherine Redcorn said. Okay, I feel like I've, I've interrupted you like six different mm. times in my own interrupting question, which was about humility, but the, I feel like you had something else to say. I keep going back over it. I guess that's it. I keep going back over the scene to try to report more and to get more and to go over it with the people um, to try to deepen my understanding and get closer. I guess that would be the only other effect it's had on me. You mean like more than you would have at a different I time? I think so. I mean, as you get someone and they tell you the story and you kind of write it up. And this time I was like, okay, I hear the story. Also, I guess partly I've reported on human perceptions a lot in stories now. And so I realize this the fallibility of human perceptions and memory. And so you know, I'm just much more conscious of those things that the memory isn't just this frozen piece. When I did the Cameron Todd Willingham story, these are people who thought they were right, but likely ended up executing an innocent man because they were arrogant about their perceptions and were misinformed. So I guess maybe also I've reported on a lot of stories with about detection and seen the foibles of detection. And so since writing is in many ways the art of detection, I'm just much more conscious of that now. I think I, maybe that's it. And they, I mm -hmm. think that's just affected me and just made me um, a little bit more humble because you realize just the brain is a tricky thing. It feels like just looking through the acknowledgments in the notes section that your search for facts in this was immense. Yes, it, and it, it was overwhelming. I will say that. I mean, I, I'm i very conscious of the fact that what we do is so, we're so lucky and we're blessed. And so I always feel like when, and I tend to do it too, when I'm in the privacy complaining about all the challenges and we should be really feel very fortunate. But there was an accumulation of archival material for this process. I have a very small office, um, if people could picture it, and I had literally tens of thousands. It got to the point where I could not walk into my room, and I had to kind of path. I'm also, sadly, not very organized. So the combination, I'm a very good getter, finder of things, but I'm a terrible with filing systems. And so... It just, the the accumulation of documents, archival materials, became overwhelming. And the thing, though, about the gathering of archival material, just to, is that you don't know what you'll find. And one of the things that was interesting about the research of this story was that there was a layer of bureaucracy around it. I mean, there was a banality of evil. And the documents are often very bureaucratic. I mean, there's court documents, grand jury testimony. They're not that bureaucratic. But... There's a place, for example, in Southwest Texas, part of the National Archives. They contain a lot of the Department of Interior, Bureau of Indian Affairs documents end up in this place. It's like, a, imagine just an enormous warehouse, bigger than a football field. The closest thing I can portray it as like literally that scene in the Raiders of the Lost Ark where they stick the ark at the end. <laughs> so I would get there in the morning and 
they would you put in a request for some document. You buy, you buy yourself at this point. Yeah, by yourself. You get there about 7.30, open very early. You give a request. They have like two times they'll pull during the day. It's very, even that's bureaucratic. And nothing's totally well cataloged. It's just like, oh, okay, guardian papers, oh, these papers. And then these boxes will come out to you. And there's just a lot of bureaucracy and you're kind of looking in and half the time your eyes are just watering because you're just like, oh, so many layers and you don't really, nothing seems that interesting. And then just to give an example is then one time I pulled a document on the guardians and just so the listeners understand, because this is a really important part of the story is there was so much prejudice back then that when the Osage became the wealthiest people in the world, the U.S. government decided that it needed white guardians to help determine how they spent their money. It's absolutely absurd. These were grown individuals, in some cases chiefs, and the guardians would tell you whether you know you could get toothpaste or what kind of cars. Not only was this a racist system, it was literally determined based on the level of your blood whether you were had a guardian or not, a white guardian. It also became a system of graft in which people were just swindling and stealing. It became a, a stank, federally sanctioned criminal enterprise. And another part to understand is we're talking about criminal enterprise involving millions and millions of dollars. The tribe was sitting on one of the great oil reserves yeah. in the world. In one year, they made the equivalent in, 2000, in 1923, I think they made the equivalent of what would be worth today about $400 million. So we're talking about vast sums of money. Split, so, split among a couple thousand people. A couple thousand people. People. And so people uh, stealing and swindling. So I pulled the even rec- the, even the fucking term guardian. Right. Well, that's part of the same thing with the villain and the devil. Right. It's that benevolence. It's the veal of enlightenment that is hiding a hammer of coercion and in some cases even a pistol or a gun. <laughs> and um, so I pulled the records on the guardians. I pulled one book. It had this fabric cover, and it just had a couple years. It was for a couple years, and it was basically just I just wanted to check to make sure the name of the guardian for somebody I had correct. Um, and so it listed the names of the guardians, and then it had the Osage who they were in charge of. And I started to go down. I'd see the the name of the guardian, and underneath I'd see the name of the Osage who they were overseeing. And next to the Osage name, sometimes we written the word dead. And then you go down a little bit further and you'd see another Osage name. You see the word dead. This was the only thing in the book. It was written out in pencil. So it just had the name of the guardian, the names of the Osage. And if the Osage died, they just wrote the word next to him dead. And I started going down and I would see dead, 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 blank, blank, dead, dead, dead. What you're starting to realize is you're looking at a ledger that is holding the clues to a systematic campaign of murder. And it looks like a ledger, like somebody was running a store and they were just kind of, you know, what they purchased that day. And that's all that was in it. And I, I sometimes try to think about the bureaucrat who simply would write in when he'd get the news that another person just write dead. Uh, there was a banality of evil here, a complicity, a banality of evil. But it was why you kind of had to go through these documents and why it was so overwhelming because until you kind of sometimes knew what you were looking for, <laughs> until you started to say, well, wait a second, all these people couldn't have died in a three-year span. It defies any natural death. And then I began to in- investigate those people listed as dead, and you start to find out clues and records that suggest there was poisonings or whatnot. Right. That's when you started to get a sense. But this was just this oddly bureaucratic document um, that somebody in the U.S. government had kept. What's that like for you when you're sitting in this 
football field sized archival warehouse and you're looking at meaning like meaningless boring document yeah. after meaningless boring document and then a murder ledger comes across well something like that i mean i've covered a lot of dark stories but there's something very disturbing about this story um because of the layers of complicity and even after, and that came long into the process when I found that document, that was many years in, you don't lose that shock. And even now, when we talk about it, you don't. If we lose that shock, then something's wrong. And um, when you see something, it actually took me a while to kind of figure it out. And then, and then what became even more shocking is then when I began to try to look into some of the cases and you realize that even at the time period when somebody died, I could find a quote from some saying, something happened to this person, please, why aren't they investigating it? And you, and you start to see clues to murder. Um, Part of that shock is that you're sitting there by yourself, and it's likely been decades since someone looked at that book. And, and you know, I think part of it is I don't even know, unless you were really immersed you might not even know what you were looking at. I mean, that's what that was even me. Like, you could just be thinking like, oh, this is just a, a, a strain, <laughs> you know, a, a, just a... Um, and there was something, because I found a lot of documents, including crime photographs, you know. Um, I found a photograph of one of the outlaws who was later shot. It's one of the craziest black and white photographs I've ever seen. It's like, looks like it's something out of like a 1930s movie where he sprawled. It's in the book as well. He sprawled on the side of the, uh, on the side of the road and had been gunned down with machine guns. He was an outlaw. In those, it's funny, you have a sense of the crime and you, and they, those photographs have like this visceral reaction. Oddly enough, the quietness and the, the banality of this document, I found far more disturbing about it. And I literally, I just kept thinking about who was the person who just in pencil wrote next to the names, dead. And sometimes they would cross out the name. And were they, well, there's a complicity. There was a complicity. And I think that's part of what this story in the book is about. And this was less of a, a story about who did it than who didn't do it. And it became a story about how there were many willing executioners. It became a story about so many people were getting wealthy that they often, either they were directly involved or they turned a blind eye. And one of the things I don't say explicitly in the book, but all the great oil barons of that day made their fortunes in the Osage. Um, J.P. Getty as a kid went there. And they would have these crazy auctions under this elm tree. It was known as the Million Dollar Elm Tree. And these oil barons would come and uh, they would gather under this tree and the Osage would have these auctions where they would lease off parts of their territory for drilling. And these leases would go for millions of dollars. And so they were. No it was known as the Million Dollar Elm. But here were all these oil barons going there during this period of this systematic murder campaign. I could not find a single comment from one of them ever speaking about it or commenting on it. And so that kind of silence to me is also a complicity mm -hmm. um, because everyone was just getting rich and they looked the other way. Is part of what's so chilling about that for you that it doesn't feel isolated? Like that this story reveals something about human nature? I do think it reveals something about the human condition. And like I said, there's a lot of, in some ways, I, I also think as writers, people always think of us as cynics. And I'm like, I think actually 
at least many of the writers I know, reporters are, are like the least cynical in the sense that I'll just speak for myself. I'm always a, almost like a little naive when I start out with these stories. And then I'm always kind of shocked. Um, in this case, I was supposed to amazed by the darkness of the human condition, the heart of dark. I was also really amazed by some of the goodness. And just to go back to the case of Molly Burkhart, because I, for me, her story is just so important. It's why I began the book with her, because to me, the fact that her story was not told previously was to me part of the problem. Like, here's this person at the center of the story, and yet why do we never hear from her? And um, and I don't say this explicitly in the book either, but here is this woman who's in her 30s, who members of her family are being killed. She's in the center of this conspiracy. She is a woman, and therefore her her views are not taken as seriously by the male authorities. And she's Osage, in which case the white authorities are even more dismissive. And her quote, guardian, is her white husband. Is her white husband, yeah. And yet, what kind of remarkable courage she doggedly tries to get justice. And so, you know, she hires private eyes. She issues money for uh, a reward. She's constantly going to the white authority saying, please solve the case of my sister. Every time she's doing that, she is putting a bullseye on her. That took an astonishing amount of courage. And, you know, I always thought about that. And of course, she is a target. And she didn't move away. And she literally kept pursuing justice when there was no justice. (laughs) And every force is conspiring against her. And I just thought that takes some real courage. I mean, that just... and, And I guess those are the good things you discover, too. I mean, part of every story and research is discovery. And so that's an amazing discovery as well. There's sort of an epilogue to her courage, which is there are these scenes of her in court later. Yeah. And you keep coming back to her in those court scenes. Yeah. She never says a word. Yeah. But it seemed really important to you that we not lose sight of what it would take to go sit in that courtroom. She's the conscious, right? She's like, for me, she's part of the conscious of the story and the conscious of the book. And, you know, you're limited by what she said in the records that exist, but she would show up, she would go there, she would steer. She was a constant reminder of what had happened. And she had to reckon with the truth that I can't even begin to fathom even after doing all the research that so many people she knew was conspiring against her. After you've spent this much time researching and this much time trying to see a story through someone like Molly's eyes, you're so clearly invested in this. How connected do you feel to her personally? I don't know if connect is the right term, but you know, you, you do get to know people. and <laughs> you, you, These are people who kind of populate your life, right? You spend that, a lot of time with these documents. And, and I think that's kind of what I'm asking yeah. is like, you know, um, is Molly sort of with you outside of the like professional, <laughs> like sitting in your super crowded office writing this book? Well, I don't. I don't. You can tell me like that's just a corny question. <laughs> no, Max. I don't know, but I, I mean, she was just someone who. Partly, her story was very hard to tell, because she is the type of person who has been kind of purposely kind of wiped out at the official records, right? And so. Getting her story, eking it out of the documents, getting the oral histories, trying to find some letters, trying to be honest, there's just, you know how I really feel about, there's just so much more I would would like to know. I mean, that's how you, I kind of feel. And that gets back to your question about humility. I just feel, I feel honored that I was able to tell that story. And I also feel very 
humbled that and I wish there was so much more I would like to know. One of the most powerful things in doing the research, because so much of it was archival, though, was meeting the descendants. And I describe in the, in the book where I tracked down uh, Molly's granddaughter and Margie Burkhardt, who was lovely and is another person I became close to over the years of working on the book. In fact, I'm going to go see her in, um, next week. And seeing her, she, she looks a little like Molly, hearing her stories. For me, that was a very powerful moment because you're getting some connection to the person who you've written a lot about, learned through paper records. Also, one of the things you realize when I talk to Margie, again, going back to what we talked about earlier, this is third generation. And there was a moments, you know, where she would break down when I would talk to her, um, the pain. Um, she showed me many of the sites where the killings had taken place. She took me to the cemetery, which sits up on the prairie, and all her family members who were murdered are there. And then when you begin to look around, you start to see the names of so many people killed during the Osage Reign of Terror. And um, you realize just how living this history is for people. And for me, it was a way to feel the history in a way that you can't always feel when you're just looking even at that bureaucratic document. How do you develop trust in those relationships? You know, I'm always very, um, pretty straightforward with people. I'm not an aggressive reporter. Um, I always impressed with like, these people who are like screaming on the phone and hanging up. Um, it's not really my nature. I try to just get to know people um, and spend time with them. Hopefully get a sense of my seriousness by the fact that I kind of stick with things. Mm -hmm. um, I try to be pretty immersive. What's also always tricky when you report is that you develop these human relationships, but you're beholden to a principle of truth. And that truth may not always be what people want. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a difficult thing. I always find that very difficult. And I try to always let people know that. Um, How does that conversation go? I'm pretty honest just saying that I may write some things you might not like, but I'm always fair. I will always ask questions. I'll always make sure people have a chance to have a response. I'm sure there will be people who read this book who live in the community who are descendants of some of the killers or who were uh, complicit weren't going to be happy. And there's not much I can do about that. And you, you have to kind of just tell it the way it was and be as honest and forthright as you can and accept that. And it's never pleasant. <laughs> but, sure. but it's but you have that you have that certain obligation. But it wasn't really that side of this story that you grew close to. No, no, no. And to be honest, well, one of the interesting thing and you don't again, you're writing about the human condition, but you learn about the human condition just even in your interactions. Um, I tracked down descendants of the killers and um, got to know several of them. Some were very forthright, very helpful. I got an email from a descendant of um, the devil who we've spoken about who wrote me an email and just said, you know, I'm I'm very ashamed of my family's role in this, the, my ancestors' role. This person has no, it's third right. generation removed. And he said, you know, if you ever see the Osage, just please tell them that for me. And I thought I was struck by that. I mean, one of the things, maybe this is too much of a spoiler, you can tell me if it is, <laughs> but one of the things that's so remarkable about this story is that in some cases those people are one and the same, right? Yes, 
Yes, yes, you have families where you have the killers and the victims were in the same household. And to some extent, this is a story about the clash of two civilizations and the formation of a country that came out of it and us reckoning with part of that history. I asked you about this earlier, but I'm going to ask it again. At what point in your reporting and writing process do you start to see these sort of huge, this is what this is about themes emerging? So, for example, there are a few themes in this book. So one theme I could see pretty early on, which was the kind of evolution of law enforcement. That, you know, because it was an early bureau case, I started to look into it. That was a theme that became pretty apparent. Some of the deeper themes... um, Yeah, I'm talking about like the human condition The human condition. It's a For this one, I would say it was a couple years in that you really begin to get at it and to figure it. And sometimes it's just spending enough time with the characters that you're writing about. I shouldn't call them characters, the individuals, the people, even trying to understand the villain to some degree. And as I started to kind of understand him as almost this kind of prototypical archetypal American figure of desperate reinvention, hiding your past and what the past might be, it really is over time. I would say it. I could speak to something like this. It's probably a couple years in. That's tremendous patience. Yeah, and and you're kind of because you're kind of figuring it out. But it's also that's what kind of makes it a pain, but also that's part of the rewards because it's only through the reporting and the gathering and really thinking about it. And sometimes it's reading. I mean, I read a ton. And you need to read a lot to think. I mean, I, I try to read a lot. So I, you know, and not just about the research, but the structure of the book came about when I was reading Absalom, Absalom by Faulkner. And because uh, it was a story in the New York Times Magazine about Absalom, Absalom, I said, well, I never read that book. And I said, I'm always embarrassed because I never read enough novels. So I was like, oh, I'm going to read this novel. So I started reading this novel. And it was at the time when I was really struggling with the structure for the book. And so I'm reading that. And I started, well, wait, this is told by multiple narrators. Wait, there's three narrators. And I said, wait a second, three narrators. Why don't I do this? And you just how the brain works. And I was reading then um, another book I had not read. I had a Coleman Fellowship. I was doing research. And I was reading Austerlitz. And I saw how he did photographs in the middle of the book. And I was like, I have all these incredible photographs. What if I use photographs as integral parts of the book? So I think the mind has weird connections. And so but that kind of happens. And it often happens unexpectedly, like that, like the Austerlitz thing. I'm just reading. I was like, wait a second. Um, why don't I do this with photography? You were saying before when you were younger, like uh, you sort of expected to figure it all out. And I guess a little bit of what I hear you saying is like, you just sort of like come to accept that you're not going to figure it all out. No, no. Like you, you might be a couple years in, you might've done this a bunch of times. You're still just going to be like struggling with structure, trying to figure it out. It doesn't get any easier. I really don't think it gets any easier. I think you, you get, in a way it gets easier because you're more, you have better systems in place. You kind of processes in place. But you also really know what's good as you go. And so therefore that gets harder because you're more aware. <laughs> you're more aware of what's good. <laughs> when did you finish the book? This book, I finished it last year. 
Um, the best feeling was boxing up all those documents in my office. <laughs> I now have a nice, clean path to my desk. <laughs> I just now need to figure out what to fill it with. <laughs> yeah, but well, what have you been doing since? Um, doing a New Yorker piece right now. Uh, not a crime story. and um, It's a politics story. You went on the campaign trail. politics, <laughs> right? Um, and I got to think of a new, eventually think of a new book project. How do you do that? How do you how do you look for stories at this point? Yeah, you know, I I would say it's twofold. I part of it is I and I haven't been as good about this as I should be, but when I'm really looking, I try to read a lot of newspapers. I often find like uh, news briefs, like the little one inch news brief, are like the the secrets of all good long form stories. I will also cold call people um, sometimes to their great annoyance. <laughs> and um, um, if I think they're smarter in a field that might be of interest, and 99% of the time it turns up nothing, and then you get lucky that 1%, or probably 0.001%. Is your appetite for this infinite? Like, can you just keep diving into these worlds? You know, I I always think no when I'm finished a project. I think I'm done, <laughs> and I'm um, I think how could I willfully you know spend the next so many years doing something like that? Um, and then of course you find the bright idea, and that's why I think the idea is so important. It's not just because it's the seeds to something hopefully that will interest people, but it's also the seeds that will interest you um, or myself. And so to me, that's what's so essential because there's a kind of a rational part to finding stories and there is a totally irrational part. And people always ask me like, well, what makes a good story? And I can break it down for you like some diagram. Well, interesting characters, there's a plot, there's these things, there's these themes. And then at some level though, there's just this irrational quality like when Catherine showed me the photograph and there's the missing panel and I just think, whoa, like there's a missing figure in history here and I just think who and the devil and who is this figure and so there's just an irrational kind of element of compulsion and so you need that and so I always think when it gets exhausted it will never come again and it may never come again uh, but usually it does and then it creeps into you and then your poor family compulsion they ask you what the hell are you doing <laughs> um, I've talked to a lot of people since the first time you and I talked for this thing and one of the uh, great themes that has emerged over all of those conversations mm -hmm. is that often, almost all the time, I think, on some level, people are writing about themselves or writing to try and figure something out about themselves. And I wonder if that sounds true to you. I don't know if it's true. I don't know. I suspect with fiction or memoir, that would be very much the case. I'm very much committed to the stories I tell. I think the part that I get to figure out is that there's a part of me that wants to do this. And I've always wanted to write. There's like a compulsion and need to write and to kind of tell a story and to tell it well. But I would say like on a story like this, I'm not really, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> maybe someone, I don't think I'm trying to find something out about myself. I'm trying to find something out about this story. I guess the things that you want to find out about yourself is you, you know, I'm like anybody else. I live with great doubt and can I do it and will I succeed and can I find the information and, you know, what if nobody reads the book? So there's all that kind of, but that's not really finding about yourself. That's more just insecurity. I'd say it's a little more external, I think. Um, I think the things that drive you to want to do it right, there's probably internal factors mm -hmm. there. But... 
the curiosity is external. If that make does that make any sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. Except that for you in talking about this book, it's so much about not just the story, but this kind of uh, what it says about the human condition. Yes. Like well, I suppose in that sense, I mean, I think in in the thing that ultimately drives me is to kind of understand things and understand the world and the place I live in and the country I live in. And I mean, the same thing that makes me read stories. So in that sense, there is a discovery, I guess, in that sense. I'm always just trying to make sense of the world, my own world, micro and then externally. I mean, you know, you can't pick up the New York Times. Like, why am I compulsively reading the newspaper today? I'm, I'm trying to understand what the hell's happening in Washington. Like, so I think there is a sense of trying to understand the world and make sense of it and your place within it. All right, so if that's the case, yeah. <laughs> what did what did this book teach you about the world? Oh gosh. Well, it told me something about our country that I'm ashamed to some degree that I was so ignorant about. I mean, you always hear about these stories, you know, settlers coming taking Native American lands. You kind of read about them opaquely in books. I had never really spent a lot of time reckoning with it and it's a part of our history. It's an important part of our history. I learned something that surprised me in going back to the human condition, that, that greed and prejudice fuse together, and what they will lead people to do is shocking. I also, as we discussed a little bit, impressed and surprised by the goodness of many people who tried to, the few people who combated it or how they dealt with it, how they survived it. And I guess on a global kind of larger level thing that I came to really understand from researching this story, and I think it's somewhat important today too, which is how important it is to be a country of laws and a nation of laws. And that was something else I had kind of only thought about abstractly. I didn't realize how lawless this country was back then. Yeah. And I didn't realize, you know, it's so easy to not understand that if there are powerful forces that can tilt the skills of justice because of prejudice, because of money, corruption, whatever it may be, it can lead to a systematic horror. And I realized in doing this research why that is so important. You see what happens when that is taken away. And so even on a skill today, you recognize how, that, how important those institutions are. That's a... Uh... Is that too heavy? <laughs> no, no, no. Should we talk about the Knicks? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe we should double talk about the Knicks afterwards after I pull myself up off the floor. Hey, David, thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Janelle Piper, and our intern was Courtney Harrell. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, Stamps.com, Squarespace, and, of course, our friends at MailChimp. More coming soon about this partnership with MailChimp. We're going to do something exciting uh, very, very soon. But exciting this week, most exciting thing I have read in 2017, Killers of the Flower Moon, David Grant's new book. Go pick it up. You won't be disappointed. We'll see you next week.
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.